This is Muslim in Plain Sight. I'm Anissa Khalifa. And I'm Khadija Khalil. Join us as we look back at 20 years of the war on terror and how our world changed as we came of age. Hi, I'm Khadija. Hi, it's Anissa. Khadija and I have something different to share with you today. A bonus episode for Me and My Muslim Friends, a podcast about Muslim identity and experiences hosted by my friend Yasmin Bendas. I've joined the show as a producer this season, and I'm delighted to introduce you all to Yasmin and her work. Hi, I'm Yasmin. I'm a North Carolina native, but I'm half Iranian and half Algerian. Through me and my Muslim friends, I've been working to bring the stories we always share with each other to people both inside and outside our community. These are the authentic stories that we share late at night over tea and dessert that we might wish more people understood. This episode covers ISIS and their ideology. It's a bit of a departure from what we cover on Muslim in Plain Sight, but of course, the rise of ISIS can be directly linked to the US invasion of Iraq, so it's relevant to our exploration of the post-9-11 world. Imam Abu Talib's rebuttal against ISIS's ugly rhetoric draws directly from core Islamic texts. It provides a nuanced and vital counterpoint to the fear-mongering and misinformation about Muslims and their beliefs that has become so rampant in the last two decades. Let's take a listen. On today's episode of Me and My Muslim Friends, we're going to talk about ISIS. We all know whenever there is a Muslim behind a terror attack, there's usually a line in the press by Muslim communities and groups condemning the attack. And then the PR line is, Islam is a religion of peace. And I know that's the case, but when there are groups like ISIS that are using the Quran to support their actions, how can we respond with a little more depth? Today we're going to be mostly focusing on the actions of ISIS, drawing from the account of Nadia Murad, who is a Yazidi woman who was captured by ISIS in Iraq. She went on to win a Nobel Peace Prize for her work in preventing sexual violence, and her book The Last Girl describes the actions of ISIS, which she calls one guided by their brutal interpretation of Islam. Hi, everyone. First off, please excuse any change in audio quality because we are not recording in the studio right now um, under the coronavirus. I'm just jumping in here to give everyone a heads up that this episode contains some graphic content, including discussion of sexual violence and suicide. Hi, my name is Abdullah Dorgum, and I'm a Raleigh native. I've been here 27 years. I attended North Carolina State University, and I've been a friend of Yasmin's for quite some time. He also has an identical twin brother, and I can tell them apart. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> He's definitely not the one on the show. Right. It's definitely <laughs> Abdullah. Yeah. Imam Abu Talib, would you like to give a brief intro of yourself? Sure. Uh, Muhammad Abu Talib. Uh, it's my uh, honor to serve as imam, a religious and spir- spiritual leader of the Islamic Association of Raleigh. Um, I think of our community, like many faith communities, as a group of people struggling to be better individuals, better f- families, better contributors to society, and that makes me struggler in chief. Um, and work hard um, to raise strong, confident young people, give them a p- sense of belonging and strong identity, and make them proud uh, to be here in America and to be positive contributors to the world. 
Me and Abdullah are going to be asking you some tough questions today, so thank you for being here. This is an important topic, and we appreciate your expertise. Um, Abdullah, I'm actually going to let you take the lead on this one. Yeah. Uh, firstly, certainly we know of many examples of hypocrisies in Muslim extremist groups in general. I know that suicide is frowned upon in Islam and is considered haram, but suicide bombing has become a common extremist tactic. And many suicide bombers refer to themselves as shaheed or as a martyr. And I'd like to know how do extremists land on that interpretation and where do you think they fall short or take things beyond the teachings of Islam? So when we look at this question, the question of a shaheed, in fact, shaheed in Arabic is not really properly translated as martyr. Shaheed comes from the Arabic root, root meaning witness. And in a sense, the usage of the word in the Holy Quran, which is used multiple times, only comes once that could be understood to be martyr. So first of all, the concept of a shaheed is not a concept that is restricted to situations of war. In fact, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, talks about a person that dies from a plague, a person that dies from a natural disaster. Um, you know, these difficult deaths all being, you know, these this status as a shaheed. So when we examine the claim of ISIS that in fighting for their cause that you attain the status of being a shaheed or some status of honor and glory and that you stand up for religion, we can say that this is illegitimate, as un-Islamic as the Ku Klux Klan's claim to the cross in the Bible. Remember that these lynchings, these murders were done while claiming the cross, while claiming the Bible. But we reject that because we know that's not what it means to be Christian, that they don't have that right to make the claim. So similarly, when ISIS, which is not the Islamic state of, you know, in Syria, which is neither Islamic nor a state, makes the claim that this is what it means to be shaheed, that this is what it means to be Muslim, that this is what it means to have honor and glory, we should unequivocally denounce and reject not only the action, but their illegitimate claim, their hijacking, of Islam as a religion and of its texts that are practiced by the overwhelming majority of 1.8 billion Muslims worldwide. Yeah, and, and to expand on that, um, the question does come up about you know civilian deaths. And part of that, I'm sure, has to do with the otherization of um, the, the victims. And that's where the justification comes in. Uh, Islamically, though, in times of conflict, we do have specific rulings on how to treat civilians who are uninvolved in the conflict directly. Um, I guess, could you expand on that and kind of show like the precedent of how Muslims treat the um, civilian populations and those that truly are in, uninvolved in these conflicts. Yes, there is an extensive literature, both in the Islamic holy book, uh, the Qur'an, uh, in the hadith of the Prophet, peace be upon him, and in early scholarly opinion and application by early Muslims that sets out an extensive ethics of war and conflict. Again, these are things that we're engaging academically and historically because these decisions are never in the hand of an individual, they're in the hands of a head of state. But you look at those decisions that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and all the prophets made in the context of a military general 
or Abu Bakr who led after his death or some of these early Muslims, it's not only that they spoke about the protection of civilians. In fact, far beyond that, there is discussion about the protection of trees and livestock and farms. Contrast this with a war tactic of the Roman Empire where the seeds would be filled with salt to make it impossible for those people to subsist on agriculture for years and years afterwards. And uh, the constitution of Medina, um, where the Prophet, peace be upon him, and early Muslims emigrated after uh, facing 13 years of persecution in Mecca, where, where they originally hailed from, um, in fact has an extensive discussion about mutual pacts and agreements between the minorities there between the citizens of Medina, between the migrants that came from Mecca that talk about mutual protection against tyranny and aggression. So I, I know that when we think of extremism, we think of the most violent acts. We think of the suicide bombings. We think of mass killings of civilians. We also tend to focus on it in terms of it being in a Western venue, like when there's an attack in Paris or another Western country. However, in reading Nadia Murad's book, it was down to very basic things in life as well that ISIS controlled under the guise of these are Islamic rules. Those things included, um, there was a, a scene where she said, I don't know why they couldn't hear me being raped because they weren't allowed to listen to music and they weren't allowed to watch TV. Well, I think um, in your first, um, I have to say, you know, reading uh, Miss Murad's account, um, the others that have suffered uh, like her and the countless people that we don't know their names. We have to start by expressing our deepest shock and sympathy and concern because no one should ever have to suffer at the hands of any form of radicalism or extremism. And she has displayed a lot of courage in bringing that story to us and helping us have these important conversations to talk about how to root this out of our communities and out of the entire world in all of its forms. Looking at your question, a word sticks out to me, which was the word control. So again, enforcing this radical ideology on others, ISIS, similar to other cults or gangs or criminal organizations, force and have to control so many elements around them because the human nature, the human spirit, the human mind is not wired for this type of violence, for this type of intolerance. That's why you see sociologists talk about the lead up to genocide, the lead up to terrorism, the lead up to crime is always one of those steps is the dehumanization of the other. So they instill these very, very controlling and overwhelming mechanisms in the areas that they control. And in fact, I wanna share a, an interesting analysis with you from the MI5, which is kind of uh, the United Kingdom's equivalent of the FBI or their domestic CIA. Mm -hmm. In a research document on ISIS, they actually talk about how a large number of people that practice terrorism, the terrorists themselves, are actually not religiously observant and engage in you know, consumption of drugs, in solicitation of prostitution, and in drinking alcohol, among other crimes, and, and their violence, of course. And they indicate, remember this is the MI5's own study, that a well-established religious identity actually protects against violent radicalization. So in fact, we should not be fooled by ISIS forcing or claiming to practice some outward shell of a single religious teaching that they are practicing Muslims are observant of the faith. 
In fact, we have to call out and condemn the hypocrisy, just as we would condemn the complicity of the German church in people that would go to worship on Sunday and then participate in the Holocaust, just as we condemn the difficult part of our history when you know, many churches in Christianity was used to justify slavery, to justify the lowness of the other, and other shocking examples throughout history when religion or other ideologies are misused. I think we have to be very direct and not mince words. That analysis from MI5 shows a, you know, new side of things for me as a Muslim, because I don't know if I would be able to go and say, oh yeah, let me go analyze what MI5 comes out right. with in a report. <laughs> yeah. But you know, logically speaking, it makes sense. Uh, once you have that control, there is no option or alternative to any kind of other view. And so it's a mark of, in the state sense, dictatorship, or in this sense of a criminal group and a non-state actor, those that have cults and gangs, that if they once they loosen their grip, the natural human spirit comes forward. And so among Muslims, the 1.8 billion Muslims worldwide are not some monolith that exactly all worship the same, that exactly all understand the same. And this is not just a reality and cultural practice. The Islamic scholarly tradition, all the way back to the generation of the companions, those that were companions of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, um, had differing views, but they didn't have to be disagreeable or intolerant. you had brought up ISIS as a criminal organization, and that was something that I definitely learned through Murad's account more explicitly because she talks about um, how they went into areas and they controlled it literally from the ground up. They had systems of taxation. For me, when I was reading about it, they were almost like a combination of a government and a mafia because they would steal property from others that they considered outside of Islam. They would steal people as property. Um, they would tax Christian groups and other groups. They would tax people that lived within the community. They had their own government offices. They had their own courts, Islamic state courts. Um, they created their own system of laws. And some of those laws didn't make a lot of sense to me from my basic knowledge of Islam growing up. One of them is, you know, I'm very familiar with the verse that there is no compulsion in religion. One of the tactics of ISIS was very clearly conversion. Um, and if the Yazidis did not convert, they were likely executed on the spot. Mm -hmm. um, she has a quote that I want to read. No Yazidis in Sinjar had been given the option of paying a fine instead of converting as Iraqi Christians had. I felt that was probably because of the consideration as Christians as of the book, as of the Abrahamic faith, and ISIS considered Yazidis completely out of the Abrahamic faith. They were completely outside religion. But how are we actually taught to treat those that are not considered of the book? So let's unpack that. Mm -hmm. As you said in the Qur'an, chapter number two, verse number 256, says there is no compulsion in religion. So the issue of forced conversions is unequivocally and categorically condemned in Islam. 
there is absolutely no precedent. There is, in fact, Muslims are not even incentivized to proselytize. And I know that's a far cry from forced conversions. But the objective of dawah, meaning invitation, is to make sure that others have a chance to have a proper understanding of the religion. That's all. There's an opportunity to invite people, but ultimately a person's choice of their faith identity is theirs. If we look at what I believe is intended by this word, fine, there's actually no concept of a fine for being a non-Muslim, even in a state that orients their ethics around Islam. And let's be clear again, this is a historical study of academic value alone, because today nation states don't implement this, even in the Muslim majority world. What there is is a concept of a jizya, what is the jizya? It is actually a uh, an amount of money that is paid by a group uh, living within the protection and the military protection of a state for those public services, most notably the defense. And why does it have the name jizya? And how do we know it's not a fine? Well, here's the thing. Muslims with the five pillars of Islam have the mandatory alms, which is called the zakah. And the zakah is mostly for supporting the poor and needy, but in a state apparatus, part of it also goes can go for the defense of the borders uh, and you know the security of people living in those lands. But zakah is a religious practice. And look at this in light of what we're talking about, forced conversion. Far from forced conversion, actually Muslim leaders did not want to impose zakah on non-Muslims living in those lands, although part of it was used for military defense because it's a religious practice. It's not only not anybody's right to force belief in God or a conversion on another person, but even to enforce their own practices. Right. And so saying that charity is required in Islam meant that we couldn't require it of others who are not Muslim. Exactly. And so the jizya is a payment that is non-religious that comes in the context, and again, this is historical, of a state that provides protection not only for the Muslim population but for non-Muslim minorities. And in fact, occasionally in history when that protection was not able to be provided, there is historical precedent of the suspension of the jizya. Now you put that and juxtapose it to you know, extremist groups like ISIS where they claim to take this money and you know, impose this fine or essentially they compulse them to say, pay this fine or die. And that essentially is, is the opposite of the goal. Give us this fine. So not that we can protect you, but if you don't, we will kill you. Like this is a clear difference. And if you were just to dive in a little bit, you can almost with utmost certainty say, this claim that they have has no basis. Has it no has no Islamic his- validity. Yeah, it has no Islamic validity and it's, it's essentially the opposite. It's important to note, you know, when we talk about ISIS dividing people for the purposes of their crimes, whether it's a fine or a forced conversion or any of the atrocities, the unspeakable atrocities that they perform, it would be easy to incorrectly think that they're doing so along faith lines or with a preference towards Abrahamic uh, faiths. But in fact, if you look at the faiths of those that have died or suffered at the hands of ISIS and their like. Who is the overwhelming majority? Muslims. They are Muslims. Their otherization, their notion that for them to advance, the other must not be, 
That's not on the lines of Muslims or on the lines of Muslims and Jews and Christians. It's that everybody that doesn't see the world through their demented ideology is an enemy. I kind of wanted to ask you, for you know, growing up and learning about the Islamic history, you know, one of the things that I learned was that very early on in Islamic history, slavery was abolished. And um, my name, Abdullah, means slave or servant of God. And that's the only um, entity we believe deserves that much of our commitment. And I, I guess my question for you is, um, when you look at how ISIS treats, you know, people they believe as the other, and they, you know, essentially be, make them their slaves. What is the context with that historical precedent we've been talking about already? There are texts that talk about slavery or people in a social status of some form of bondage or indentured servitude in the Old Testament, in the Talmud, in the New Testament, and in the Holy Quran. There is no Muslim university. There is no Muslim majority state. There is no group of scholars. There is no one across the Muslim world that based on the name of religion is calling for the reinstitutionalization of slavery or uh, bringing people into that status. And a lot of that has to do with so many religious texts that worked for the abolishment of slavery and the goals of the Prophet uh, Muhammad, peace be upon him, which could be described as always seeking to take people out of that status, but also reintegrate into society. I think what I can do here is show how much ISIS has distorted that from your explanation. This is going to be a really difficult section to read, but it's actually from an ISIS pamphlet, and Nadia Murad cites this in her book. Um, the pamphlet is called Questions and Answers on Taking Captives and Slaves. And again, they say that this is based on Islamic rules. Um, I'm just going to read it verbatim. Question, is it permissible to have intercourse with a female slave who hasn't reached puberty? Answer, it is permissible to have intercourse with a female slave who hasn't reached puberty if she is fit for intercourse. Question, is it permissible to sell a female captive? Answer, it is permissible to buy, sell, or give female captives as slaves for they are merely property. She also says that she could be taken as a sex slave because she was considered an infidel as a Yazidi and that they said that raping a slave is not a sin. Well, the great pain that uh, it causes me to hear that, uh, let me say unequivocally that I'm not going to take my Islam from ISIS. And I hope none of our listeners and no human being in the world will. Uh, let us say unequivocally that sex slavery, or as we spoke about earlier, bringing people into slavery in the first place is categorically forbidden uh, by Islamic texts as well as by people of conscience across faith traditions all across the world. The issue of rape in the precedent of Islamic law was among the most serious crimes that was punished, that was punishable at the level of a crime called hiraba, which is a major crime of banditry against the state. And in fact, the penalty was up to the death penalty for someone that forcibly, you know, performed this unspeakable act upon another human being. From over a thousand years ago, in uh, 
you know, with scholars such as Imam al-Shafi'i. There is actual discussion to the level of detail that talks about a person that forcibly, um, you know, sexually imposes themselves upon a person that is in the status of milkiri, I mean, a person that was in bondage, again, because that was a reality of the time and not everyone had exited that status. And he talks about the punishment that would be done against the aggressor, but not just that, the reparation or what could be given to usually this woman, um, you know, in addition to changing her status to freedom, but actual financial support and so on to help, of course, never could make that crime go away, but Mm -hmm. to recognize that her right had been violated. So we should be very clear. There is no space for slavery in Islam or in the world today. There is no space for sex slavery in Islam or in the world today. And uh, these issues of rape and so on, you know, are have precedent in our religion that these are things that people talked about, condemned and worked against in society. I think that in reading Murad's text, one of the hard things was the silence of the Muslims around her, those that weren't part of the caliphate but lived in the communities. She talked a lot about um, she lived in a small village that was Yazidi, and outside there were Sunni Arabs, and she said they never warned us about what they were going to do to us. They could have maybe at least let us know what they were going to do um, for the women. And she considered that, that their silence, she said, was like the bullets before the bullets came. We should never walk away from witnessing tragedy or seeing the harm to others without saying, what can I do? And in fact, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, says in a hadith, in a tradition, that the greatest form of struggle is speaking a word of truth in the face of of an oppressive ruler. So this standing for social justice, this standing for often the forgotten or the voiceless or those that have been uh, you know, uh, treated unfairly by society is for Muslims not only a civic duty, uh, not only a contribution to society, but in fact a, among the highest forms of worship of God Almighty. talked about how Islamic State has done all of these things in the name of Islam, but we've proven that they fall outside of Islam. Yet within their name, ISIS, they're holding Islam within their own title. So what do we do with that? In the West, we know them as ISIS. But you know, in the Arabic-speaking world, that's not what they're called. They're called Daesh, which I can't really translate or else you'll never invite me back. (laughs) But it's a very derogatory kind of curse word to indicate exactly what the street, exactly what Muslim scholars, exactly what the world perceives them as. But we're struggling, and the word ISIS shows it. When people do these crimes, in the West we struggle to say clearly, even if you're not a Muslim, even if you don't believe in Islam as a faith, to say that's not Islam. To look at their perversion, to look at their hijacking of the text, as a legitimate religious interpretation in the first place is a big mistake. Thank you for listening to me and my Muslim friends. Whether or not you have a Muslim friend, you'll find one here. 
Our podcast is recorded in WUNC Studios in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. It is produced by Liz Schlemmer and Aditi Banlamudi. Original music is by Dale Ruffin and Grant Levesay. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm your host, Yasmin Bendas. See you next time.